Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guides to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're continuing to consider the life of David. And today we're reading about uh, David's rise in uh, prestige and how Jonathan and Saul react to that. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Has Jesus ever made you give up something that you love? It's not a very nice thing that he does occasionally or often doesn't seem to be. Jim Belcher tells a story that of um, a man named Sheldon Van Auken that I thought we would consider this morning. You may know his name. He was a uh, literature professor who is somewhat well-known for his writing and uh, most prominently for a book he wrote entitled The Severe Mercy. Van Auken, who went by Van, uh, departed from the Christian faith at a fairly early age. At, at the age of, um, or as he entered high school, he went off to a military academy. He decided that he wasn't that interested in Christianity, decided that he would depart from the faith that his family had been pretty serious about for his upbringing, and he celebrated that event. He said, if God is dead, then man is free. I don't have any responsibility. I can move in the direction that I want. The the horizon is now wide open. Van Auken was a a thoughtful person. And uh, so as he he began to walk down this road, he uh, knew that he had to, to figure out a way to organize life. As he began to engage atheism, he knew full well or came to, re- came to realize that atheism didn't actually provide any coherent code of life. 
There was nothing by which he would order his life in atheism at large, so he himself would have to decide upon something that was a priority for him that would help him to say yes to certain things and no to other things and move in a certain direction. And having been schooled in the classics, Van decided that he would land on the notion of beauty. Beauty was going to be his ideal. For him, it captured the things of love and joy, and that would be his pursuit. He would run unhindered in that direction. And as he entered into college, he uh, continued to pursue this. And in his junior year, he uh, settled on, um, or found, perhaps, uh, his most significant beauty. Her name uh, was Jean Davis, and she went by Davy. And they were instantly uh, very much in love. Their love blossomed. They pursued beauty together. They were married and their life became one of adventure. They would explore the Virginia countryside together. They even took a significant amount of time and kind of surrendered all earthly possessions and sailed on a small sailboat through the Florida Keys. It was a, uh, a passionate, so perhaps reckless, um, love that, that, that pursued beauty in all its glory. Eventually, uh, Van started teaching at the college level and then would go on to Oxford to pursue another degree in literature. And Davy, of course, went with him. And uh, it was later on that Van would look back on his life with Davy on the, their relationship and the beauty that they were pursuing together. And he wrote, If we were caught up in love, we were no less caught up in beauty. The mystery of beauty. Essentially, we were pagan, but it was a high paganism. We worshipped the spirits of earth and sky. We adored the mysteries of beauty and love. It was uh, to us the greatest glory we had ever known. And so they thrived in that glory and arrived in 1950 at Oxford, where Van began to study and where they would also form a uh, relationship that would grow and blossom with one of the professors there at the time, C.S. Lewis. And eventually, uh, apparently in the 1950s, quite different now, but in the 1950s, the air at Oxford was thick with Christianity. Uh, you can imagine, as Lewis is a professor there, uh, who's a, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, he's a rather famous Christian apologist and writer. And so uh, there's lots of discussions about Christianity on campus, and Van and Davy get caught up in these, and they begin to consider what the faith had to offer. Why people were interested in Christianity. And Van started to come back from a place where he had been, where he was willing to again uh, hear its claims. Davy converts to Christianity. She says, yes, this is truth, and really surrenders everything to Jesus in a pretty prominent way. Van is not so soon to follow. It takes time. She's working on him. C.S. Lewis is working on him. And eventually, working through the Gospel of Mark, there's one evening that he describes where he realized, I have moved, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself having embraced Jesus, but there was a moment where I realized that I had moved closer to Jesus than away from Him. And from that point, I could not return. And so he wrote to Lewis, Christianity now appeared intellectually stimulating, aesthetically exciting, and emotionally moving. Lewis wrote back, My prayers are answered. And then he proceeded to warn Van. He wrote to him, there will be a counterattack on you, you know. So don't be too alarmed when it comes. The enemy will not see you vanish into God's company without an effort to reclaim you. That did not take long. 
1952, Van graduated. They returned to Lynchburg, Virginia, where they had hailed from. He resumed teaching. And uh, Davy had struggled for a, a period of time with a number of different odd illnesses. In 1952, she became rather sick. And by 1955, uh, she was hospitalized uh, fairly permanently. Her liver had almost entirely deteriorated. And indeed, she died in 1955. So to put things in perspective, Jesus took from Van what he held most dear. He took his wife. And that makes us wrestle with the reality or the question, if Jesus is king and you are his subject, then he has the authority to do with you whatever he pleases. He is the anointed one, and he loves you to the extent that he will not always let you have what you want. Why would he do that? Because he's the cosmic killjoy? Or because Jesus in his wisdom knows that you love sometimes the wrong thing, or sometimes you love something so much that it deprives you from loving him the right way, or sometimes you pretend to love Jesus because of what you perceive you get from it, rather than actually loving him. And there's no way unless he were to rob you of that thing that you perceive to receive from him, that your love for him would actually be tested. This is the heart, this is the crux of discipleship. Without being put in these positions, our discipleship is a myth that's yet to be tested. So this is the test that comes upon Sheldon Van Auken. It is the test that comes upon all of us at one point or another. And it's something that unfolds before us in 1 Samuel 18 and gives us opportunity to consider how we then confront or meet that test, how we respond to that happening. In our passage, David was the anointed one. Samuel has already poured oil on David's head, saying, you are going to be the next king of Israel. Now, it's a secret. Saul doesn't know that. Jonathan doesn't know that. But you, the reader, working through 1 Samuel, know that David has been chosen by God, and it's only a matter of time. And David, in this chapter, you see him ascending. He's finding success in absolutely everything that he does. Because God's hand is upon him, he can do no wrong. And what you have to realize that if Saul, or if David is moving up, if he's ascending in the kingdom, and if the kingdom is going to be David's, then the kingdom can't be Saul's. And if the kingdom can't be Saul's, then it can't be Jonathan's, because Jonathan is Saul's son. So if David is going to be king, then Saul isn't going to be king, and neither is Jonathan going to be king. So realize there's profound loss with the anointed one receiving what is his due. Profound loss for Saul, profound loss for Jonathan. As David is the anointed one in this chapter, and Saul and Jonathan react in very different ways to him, in an allegorical fashion, it raises the question for us, and I think it is intended to do so, Jesus is our anointed one. He is our king, and if he is going to be king, then you cannot be. Jesus' authority and reign means that you will be robbed of certain privileges or prerogatives or powers that you would like to think that you possess and can execute in your life, but if Jesus is king, you can't be, and those are actually not really real. And so as you're stripped of some of those powers and authorities, as you're stripped of the desire to be king or to affect that reality, the question then becomes, how are you going to respond? Do you have more in common with Saul? 
Or do you have more in common with Jonathan? This is what's laid before us. You know, fascinatingly, the author doesn't have David speak in this chapter. Right, David is the most prominent figure in this whole story. He is the main character, doesn't have anything to say. And that is because the chapter is about how people respond to David. For us, it causes us to ask how we respond to Jesus. And David is the man who can do no wrong. Right? Let's be frank. The description of David in 1 Samuel 18 is he's the guy you love to hate. In verse 5, he out, goes out and is successful wherever he's sent. In verse 14, he has success in all his undertaking. In verse 16, uh, all of Judah and Israel love David. Right? He's the guy, he goes out, he kills the giant. He goes out and uh, defeats the Philistines. And then he comes, out, comes back and starts playing because he's a highly skilled musician. Is there anything that he's bad at? Oh yeah, he's really handsome too. Right? So it's kind of, you just, you, you, just reading the chapter, you kind of get rubbed. You almost want to side with Saul and Jonathan. He's too gifted. But this is God's anointed one who is on the rise. His success is, of course, as verse 14 tells us, the result of God's hand being upon him. And we realize that no matter how Saul is going to respond, no matter what direction he's going to go, God's revelation, God, the way God is going to move his story forward is not going to be thwarted. You know, Saul will be, will try to pin David to a wall, and that still will not. If God's decided David's going to be king, David's going to be king. So how did Saul respond to his ascendancy? Well, in a word, he's angry. He's angry enough to kill someone. Upon returning from victory over Goliath and the Philistines, uh, the people begin to sing um, in verse 8, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands in the song, and what more can he have but the kingdom? Why was Saul angry? Saul is angry because he sees David as a threat. Saul loves his uh, power, his prestige, his position, and even though God has told him that he's done, he's not willing to let go. He's going to hang on for all it's worth. And so as he sees David threatening those things that he loves, he becomes incredibly angry at David. Anger is, a, is an important indicator of where our hearts are. Anger is often a secondary emotion. It's not very often what you feel initially. Sometimes we feel hurt or lonely or humiliated. And as a result of feeling those things, then anger is a tool we use to deal with those initial emotions. When Jesus challenges something you love, you may feel all those things. What happens to you, what happens to your heart when Jesus threatens something that you hold most dear? As you may imagine, uh, Van suffered a tremendous amount of grief and a tremendous amount of anger at the loss of his wife. He reached out to Lewis, writing, God could not be as loving as he was supposed to be. And... Uh, forgive the language, but it captures Van's sentiment as he continues to write to C.S. Lewis, I'll write to hell with God. I'm not going to believe this damned rubbish anymore. Lies, all lies, I've been had. You can perhaps understand why Van would react in that way 
Jesus had required something that he loved very much. And Lewis, fascinatingly, at this time, had actually formed a relationship with Van that was, that was fairly deep. Uh, they, they trusted one another, and he had the relational capital to actually be able to challenge Van on how he was processing what had occurred. And Lewis wrote back to him, One way or another, the thing had to die. Perpetual springtime is not allowed. You are not cutting the wood of life according to the grain. You have been treated with a severe mercy. You have been brought to see that you were jealous of God. That's some pretty serious counsel. Can you imagine suffering through the loss of a spouse and you hear from someone you trust and you respect? Yes, one one way or another, the thing had to die. You loved it too much or you loved it in the wrong way or the thing itself, in this case the marriage, was actually keeping you from having an intimate relationship with Jesus. Who knows to what degree that would have threatened Davy's relationship with Jesus This is how God has proceeded, and you need to understand it as a severe mercy. Goodness. Part of me doesn't quite know what to think of that, but part of me is uh, thinks Lewis is very much correct. Despite Lewis's challenge, Van was immersed in his anger, and he would walk away from the faith for the next 20 years. He was swallowed by his anger, and he began to look for beauty in other things rather than in the God who he felt had betrayed him. Now, this is an extreme example, to be sure. And yet it raises the question, if Jesus is the anointed one, if he is king and we cannot be, then he has the authority to require of us anything that he wills. It is up to him to do as he sees fit. Do you believe that God, what God requires of you is good for you? Where is God perhaps testing you even now with a severe mercy? Saul could not submit to God's leading, and as a result, Saul's life is actually already spiraling out of control. It's going to spiral all the more out of control because he won't heed God's revealed will. He says, "My, my will for my life is superior to what God reveals to me. I reject the anointed one. I move in my own direction. And nothing but destruction results. It is a sad course. But when it comes to losing something we love for the anointed one, David in our chapter, Jonathan gives us a very different example. A much more beautiful picture of what it means to respond to God's revealed will, even at our own expense. Remember, Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. If David is becoming king, that means Jonathan is not going to be. And you think, there might be a bit of anger there, of frustration. Jonathan is painted throughout 1 Samuel as a noble character. He has done his own deeds of bravery against the Philistines. He set himself apart. And how easily it would simply be to say, hey, that's my dad. His sins aren't my sins. Yeah, he's messed up, and I recognize he's messed up. Why can't I still be king? I've been doing a good job. But instead of that, look at verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David's rise meant that Jonathan could not inherit the throne, but rather than, than, than revolting against that notion, rebelling against the authority of God, Jonathan says, okay, 
And he takes all of the symbols of his authority, the symbols of his kingship, the symbols of his power, and he gives them to David. He says, I recognize that you are going to be king. This is God's story. I want to be part of God's story, not just my story. And so he hands all these symbols over to David, recognizing, yeah, you're the one. You're the anointed one. And so my power and my prestige, my knee bends to your authority. And I'm yours. He makes a covenant with him, a formal obligation, recognizing and solidifying their love for one another. And Jonathan will protect David and be for him for the rest of the story. You know, there's also another response that's worth considering in the story of Sheldon Van Auken, and that's the response of Davy. Interestingly, his wife, who had converted to Christianity at Oxford, um, seems like a very special woman. She, interestingly, called Christianity the obedience. That's how she referred to it. And surrendered really everything that she had to Jesus' lordship, both in Oxford and coming back to Virginia, continuing to worship Christ, even as Van was was wrestling uh, with actually working out his faith. And uh, we know from their story, and from writing that a few months before she actually died, she believed full well that she was dying. She knew that it was coming. And so she prayed and she said, Lord, your will be done. But she also prayed that her life might be given in exchange for her husband be truly belonging to Jesus. And so she would perish, but her prayer would be answered. Some 20 years later, after her death, in 1973, a friend sent Van a copy of a book that Lewis had written, and he was reading through the book, and he was arrested in his reading by this passage. If a man diligently followed his desire for joy, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appeared, and then they're resolutely, and then resolutely abandon them, he must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given in our present mode of subjective and spatio-temporal existence. Well, what in the world is Lewis saying there? Right? This is what he's saying. This is what arrests Van in the moment of reading it. He says, listen, pick whatever thing you want to pursue in life. Power, control, joy, beauty, you name it. Pursue it to its end, and you will find that it does not satisfy. And in that realization that you have pursued something wholeheartedly to its end, and ultimately you are not satisfied, that yearning to be satisfied reveals to you that there is a yearning in the human spirit and heart that cannot be satisfied except by something that is otherworldly. Something that comes from outside. Why would the yearning exist at all? If it could not be satisfied, it cannot be satisfied here. It must be met. It must be created to, to be met by something that is other. And so, what Van is understanding, he says, I loved beauty. And I loved Davy. And Davy defined beauty for me. And we pursued beauty together. But in the end, it wouldn't satisfy. Yes, it was hard because she died early, but ultimately she would have died anyway. Ultimately, we would not have known a beauty that ultimately ultimately uh, satisfied and quenched the desire for beauty in our souls. And in that, he realizes that beauty comes from the outside. It comes from the Creator. It comes from the King, the Anointed One. And so he began to repent. He returned to the church. He picked up his pen and he wrote a severe mercy. 
the book that chronicles his life with Davy and her death, and he came to understand it as Lewis had held it out to him. Davy's prayer for her husband was indeed answered. In 1 Samuel, as we take a step back, we have the anointed one, David, who's ascending to be king and finding success. He's on that road, and Saul and Jonathan are beginning to realize it. Saul says, what else can he have but the kingdom? And so Saul responds in anger, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, which simply speeds up the process that is underway. And he seeks to kill David. He seeks to do everything in his power to, to prevent God's agenda from coming to, to bear. And in Jonathan, you see the exact opposite reaction. You see him love David. He's not threatened by David. He's not angry. And he lays down his rights and privileges so that the anointed story moves forward. And he knows that the best possible place for him in all of existence is in the story of the anointed one. Jesus comes to us and calls us to faith, and then we walk with Him. We walk with Him in the obedience. But there is time after time where Jesus, because He is King, and because He loves you enough to communicate deeply that you cannot be King, will strip you of things that you love dearly. And it is in that stripping, when the Anointed One comes and exerts His authority, that you have to ask, am I going to be Saul or am I going to be Jonathan? Do I reject the anointed one's story? I'm going to pursue my will, all things to be, to be thrown out. Or like Jonathan, are you going to say, I lay everything down. Whatever I may have desired or thought that I would receive through this road, it is a small sacrifice to be caught up in the story of the anointed one. You know, both Jonathan's life and Saul's life end tragically. Right? Just because Saul does this doesn't mean his life is all honky-dory. But the author of Samuel points out that while Saul's legacy is lost, Jonathan's legacy is not. As we'll see in the coming weeks, that his son will sit at the table with David in the feast of the king and enjoy his presence. And so is the place for all who relinquish their perceived power, their perceived authority for the story and for the reputation of the Anointed One. Will you be Saul or will you be Jonathan? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You that the Anointed One, our Lord, has redeemed us. But we recognize full well that His authority and kingship threatens all sorts of things that we love and that we do not always like your story rather than our story. And so we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would grow us up in faith and maturity and help us to be like Jonathan. That we would lay down whatever we perceive to be our rights and privileges and authorities, that the story of the anointed might go forward unhindered. That we might actually, not that we actually could hinder your story, Father, but that we would actually participate with it and know the glories that come in it rather than constantly being uh, spokes in the wheel. We praise You for Your gracious kindness to us and that even though we constantly are angry at Jesus, You forgive us and You help us to, uh, to grow. 
So we pray, Father, indeed, that our anger would diminish and that we would run to Jesus and that we would celebrate the Anointed One. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.